Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. I want to welcome everybody watching online, everybody here in the room. How have you guys uh, enjoyed this cool weather? Is it awesome? Yeah, yeah. Finally, short sleep weather for me. So I'm loving it. This is fantastic. Praise God. All right, so we're in the midst of this series called God's Masterpiece. And it's built off of Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the question, what are the good works that God has called us as Christians to do? And today, I want to talk about something that God has called all of us as believers to be a part of, and that is the call to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Peter spells out what this looks like very well in 1 Peter 3, 8 to 10. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, did you catch the tie-in here between love and and sympathy, between love and compassion? I want to show you a little video that, that demonstrates compassion, and it is one of the most amazing reflections of the human capacity for empathy, for reading and responding to what's in another person's heart that you'll ever see. So check out the screen here, and you'll see the face of empathy. Jody? Don't spit your food out. (laughs) Baba, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Isn't that unbelievable? (laughs) You know, So I had several thoughts when I saw that video for the first time. One of them was, you know, when the psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, he was not kidding. I mean, you're looking at the human capacity to read and respond to what's going on in another person's heart in a baby that's not even one year old. You know, when, when those little eyebrows start to lift up and that chin starts to tremble, like that little baby saying, oh, mommy, if you're sad, it'll break my heart. And I was thinking, what a great therapist that kid could make someday, don't you think? Right? And then I was thinking, what kind of a mother would deliberately make her baby cry like that? Yeah, to which I thought, what a great therapist that kid's going to need sometime in the near future. But, whew. But I was also thinking, if we have such a strong inborn capacity for empathy, for sympathy, for the language of the human heart that it's evident in a little baby. Like how in the world do our relationships, our neighborhoods, our world end up so messed up? How do we not tap into that, that hardwiring for empathy and do better with that? And so today what I wanna do is I wanna talk about 
what it would look like if we took the command to love our neighbor as ourselves seriously. And so we're going to look at the most famous neighbor story ever told. Jesus is the one who told this story. And Jesus, he knew all about neighbors. This was not abstract stuff for him. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a small town. He was a carpenter until he was about 30. So he knew what it was like to have somebody come over and say, hey, Jesus, can can you give me a hand? Like, hey, Jesus, can can I borrow your tools? Hey, Jesus, can you do me a favor and, and help me fix this fence? But Jesus introduced a whole new perspective on neighborly love that as a matter of history changed the world. So let's take a look at the most famous neighbor story ever told. It begins like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, so this guy is regarded as a Bible expert, and he comes to test Jesus. Okay, this ought to be good, right? And he comes across as a proud interrogator who presumes upon his own correctness, upon his own righteousness, but ultimately, he's going to be judged by his own words. So this religious lawyer says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, we're gonna pause here and talk about a few key words, neighbor and self since we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. That word neighbor, it comes from the word nigh, okay, to be near, to be close. Your neighbor is that real, imperfect, flesh and blood, actual human being that your life brings you into contact with. The Bible doesn't say love everybody. Only God can do that. No, it says love your neighbor. It gets real concrete. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right now you're thinking, well, it sounds like Jesus is saying that that we ought to love ourselves, but Jesus was also famous for saying, deny yourself, die to yourself. So so which one is it, love yourself or die to yourself? Well, yes, exactly. You have to understand what love means. People, to love means to will the good of another. To love is to will the good. So if you truly love somebody, you will their good as God intends for them to be good. So self-love in the biblical sense, hear me on this, it's not self-indulgence, okay? It doesn't say indulge your neighbor as you indulge yourself. No, it says love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So to truly love myself means, among other things, that I'm gonna desire that myself die to the cheap idols that, that ruin my life. To truly love means I give of myself for my neighbor. Now, is that easy? No, because my sinful self is always at work resisting God, resisting truth, resisting love. And early on in our marriage, I remember Wendy very gently, very kindly trying to point out to me, trying to hint to me that I was not pulling my weight around the house, like serving, cleaning, etc. And my immediate response was not to own up to my own selfishness, okay? No, my immediate response was to generate counterarguments based on situations when I had, in fact, served, even if I had to go back months or years to do so. Yeah, that was my immediate response. And by the way, your most important neighbor, your most important neighbors, they don't live in this house or that house. You know where they live? 
Now they live in your house. Again, that word neighbor, nigh, the person closest to you. That's where we start. And so this guy, he, he says to Jesus, well, I got it. Love God with all that you've got. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Well, now this guy can't just walk away, can he? Now he's on the hook. Jesus is saying, yes, that indeed is the perfect standard. But do any of us live up to that standard? Can we do that? Can we love God and our neighbor perfectly? No, of course not. That's why Jesus came. Only Jesus could pull that off. But I'm telling you, until people admit that they don't live up to that perfect standard, they will never see their need for a savior. They'll never see their need for Jesus. And that's the problem with this guy right here. One commentator on this passage said it well. He said, at this point, the lawyer should have been honest. He should have said, look, I can't love God like that. I can't love God all the time perfectly with all my faculties. And I can't love every person around me with the perfect love the same way I love myself. I can't do that. I haven't done that. I'm not capable of it. I won't do that in the future. I admit my inability. I live in constant violation of this standard. I cannot be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. I cannot be holy as he is holy. I am therefore sinful. I'm headed for punishment. I will miss the kingdom unless I receive mercy and forgiveness. He goes on to say, he should have cried out for mercy and forgiveness like the publican in Luke 18 who beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He should have been ashamed, should have felt deep conviction, should have been broken, contrite, confessed his sin, cried out for mercy. But he drowned out the fire of conviction with the water of self-righteous pride. He doused what was going on in his conscience with his own self-righteousness. And it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. That's the problem right there. He wanted to justify himself. Well, Galatians 2.16 says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You say, well, what was the purpose of the law? To lead us to Christ, to show us that we fall short. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by, say it with me, faith. Nobody's going to be justified themselves. Nobody's going to be justified by works of the law, by loving God and their neighbor perfectly. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, let's get back to our story. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yeah, so now he's looking for a loophole with Jesus. He says, okay, if the Bible says that I love my neighbor, then, then who exactly is in this category of neighbor? That is, who am I obligated to love? Now, there was debate going on in the first century amongst the rabbis as to who would be included in that neighbor category. Some rabbis said, your neighbor is that devout Israelite in your midst, the one who loves God and loves the Torah. Some other rabbis said, well, no, it's, it's a little broader than that. It would actually include your average Israelite, even if they're not scrupulous about obeying the Torah. And, and a few rabbis said, no, it includes everybody in Israel, even the sinners, even the tax collectors. 
But let me tell you, there was really no rabbi out there who was saying that that word neighbor would include a Gentile or a despised Samaritan because they were the enemies of God. And so the question is, what kind of person, who fits into this category that I'm obligated to love? Well, Jesus is going to bring a totally different perspective to this command. And let me share a little side with you here. When you say that, that somebody ought to love or somebody ought to do something, there are really two kinds of oughts, two different ways of looking at it. There is what you might call the ought of obligation, and then there is the, an ought of opportunity. So an ought of obligation is something you do out of pressure, out of necessity. But an ought of opportunity is, man, you can't miss this chance. This is too good. So if somebody were to say to you, you ought to pay your taxes, would that be an ought of obligation or opportunity? Anybody? Yeah, obligation. Okay, you, you ought to drive under the speed limit. Okay, obligation or opportunity? And some of you guys, well, you know, I don't know, sort of. Now, that would be an obligation, okay? Last time I checked the laws. You ought to eat at Shanghai. I would say that's an obligation, okay? <laughs> but it's an odd of opportunity, I'm just saying. Anyway, for this religious guy, love your neighbor is an ought of obligation. Kind of like with taxes. Okay, how much do I have to give here? He wants to know who fits into this category. Who's the person that, that I'm obligated to love? For Jesus, for Jesus, love is not just an obligation. It's our greatest opportunity. When it comes to Jesus, love is, is not just an obligation. It's our greatest opportunity. It's why we live. It's what makes us alive. I mean, the more you love, the more you live. When Jesus says, do this and live, he's talking about being fully alive, making the most of your life. I ran across a really profound quote by George MacDonald. He says, for we are made for love, not for self. Our neighbor is our refuge. The precious thing to the human soul is and one day shall be known to be every other human soul. That's why it says, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's interesting here. The man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, he launches into this little story. And we would expect that there would be a giver of neighborly love and a receiver of neighborly love. And we would expect the question to be answered is, who is eligible to receive my neighborly love? But Jesus, he's got a few curveballs to throw in this story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, that's all that Jesus says about this man going down to Jericho. Was he a good guy or was he a bad guy? Jesus doesn't say. What, was he an Israelite or, or was he a Gentile? Jesus doesn't say. There's only one guy in the receiver category and we have no idea what he's like. Jesus isn't gonna answer the question, who is my neighbor? Instead, he has three different characters in the potential neighborly love giver category. A priest, a Levite, and then the third one we'll come to in a minute. Jesus isn't going to answer what kind of person am I obligated to love because love is our greatest opportunity. Instead, he asks, what kind of person must you be to be able to give love? Well, that's a whole different question. So Jesus goes on with the story. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. 
Okay, a priest is educated in the law, right? I mean, he can recite all the commandments about neighbors. He leads worship. He prays. He sacrifices. Surely love has been formed in this guy, except it hasn't. The Bible goes on to say he sees the guy and just keeps on walking. And then Jesus says, so too a Levite came to the place and saw him. And the Bible says, and he too kept walking. You say, what's a Levite? A Levite was an assistant to the priest. They were educated, but a little less educated than the priests. Informed about the Torah, but a little less informed. In our day, we might say a Bible church guy went walking down the road, and then a Baptist went walking down the road. Okay, makes sense? <laughs> I'm kidding, all the Baptist friends. Anyway, I went to Baylor. So it's all good. It's a joke. So... Next, Jesus comes to the punchline of the story, and, and I mean the, the punchline of this story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, let's stop here, in Israel, Samaritans were despised half-breeds, the very enemies of God. To borrow a modern phrase, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. That sounds extreme, but that's kind of the way they felt. Like, those guys don't worship the same God. They don't even have the right scriptures. I mean, nobody expected Jesus to toss a Samaritan into the mix here. A Samaritan, when he saw him, he felt compassion. What exactly does he felt compassion mean? It means when he saw this beaten up, robbed, stripped, left for dead guy, certain thoughts went through his mind. Like, what would it be like? to be beaten up, stripped, robbed, and left for dead. How awful would that feel? I mean, what's gonna happen to this guy if he's left alone? Who will help him? I mean, couldn't I do something? Couldn't I help? What else do I have to do today that could be more important than this? Now, this is critical. How did the priest and Levites answer those questions? They didn't. Those questions didn't even occur to them. They had thoughts like, well, you know, I wonder if the robbers are still around. You know, the Romans ought to post some soldiers on this road to protect people. What are all of our tax dollars going for? So somebody ought to do something here. You know, when, when I get to the temple, I'll say a prayer for this beaten up guy. Boy, God will be pleased with that. And Jesus said on many occasions that our actions are an overflow of our heart and our minds. See, when my life is directed by the Spirit of God, it'll result in acts of compassion, acts of goodness. But if my thoughts are self-absorbed, like all about me, all about my agenda, that'll be reflected in what I do as well. And let me tell you something. People often tell this story as if the problem for the priest and the Levite was they were just in too big a hurry to do something good. I'm going to totally say, no, that's not right. I'm going to differ on that interpretation. Their problem was not that they were in too big of a hurry. Their problem was they didn't have compassion. They were not compassionate people. And it's weird. Religion can do this to you. It's kind of sobering. Martin Luther King said this, the priest and Levite asked, if I stop to help him, what'll happen to me? The Samaritan asked, if I don't stop and help him, what'll happen to him? See, he had compassion. So Jesus ends the story with this. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
The question is no longer who am I obligated to love because love is God's greatest opportunity. The question is what kind of person is able to offer love and compassion? A priest, which we would expect, a Levite, which we would expect, or a Samaritan for crying out loud. Well, the expert in the law replied, the, the, the one who had mercy on him. And did you catch that? The one? Like he won't even bring himself to utter that word, Samaritan. Well, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus ends this story with that one little phrase, go and do. That's our calling, go and love. Like we don't want to be a church that just gives right answers. We want to get out. We want to do something with it. Go and love. And of course, we can't do this by ourselves. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to go to Jesus daily and say, help help me to live in your love. Like fill me up, Lord. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I pray, I pray that you, talking to Christians, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. See, you were made to be rooted in love. We saw a little bit of that with the the baby and the mother being rooted, nurtured, grounded in somebody loving me unconditionally, loving me no matter what. Well, only God can fill that tank. So I go to God daily and say, God, would you remind me of how incredibly deep your love for me is? And then let that flow out of me to others. And here's the deal. There are going to be some difficult people to love. Yeah, I see some people going, yeah. Mm -hmm." Jesus actually addressed this quite explicitly. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, we're in the Old Testament. I couldn't, couldn't find a verse that says, hate your enemy directly. Couldn't find that. People kind of supplied that one. I think they said, well, if I ought to love my neighbor, then they're going to be non-neighbors, and so I guess I get to hate them. Well, Jesus says, no, doesn't work that way. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, sometimes you have a neighbor that, that wants to keep you at a distance. Okay, love them from a distance. There's some real great wisdom in this proverb here. I want us to read this out loud together. Will you read this with me? Here we go. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Okay. Any of you night owls, non-morning people want to say amen to that with me? Yeah. Not until I've had my coffee or whatever. But What what does this mean? Let me tell you what this means. It means you have to know what your neighbor will receive from you, okay? If the people around you want space, give them space. Like, you don't have to pound on their door and says, say, Jesus says I have to love you, so open up, okay? I don't like this any more than you do, but it has to be done. Open up this door. <laughs> no. You may have neighbors who close you off because, I don't know, they're too busy. They're introverted, maybe. Or, or maybe their relational plates are full. They're in a different stage of life. Maybe they don't want to be exposed. Heard about a couple whose neighbors were kind of difficult, kind of irritating, standoffish. They didn't know it for years, but it turns out there there was abuse. There was unfaithfulness going on in that home. And so the husband didn't want anybody to find out. And the wife was terrified of what might happen if people did. 
Some of you know the old country western song, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. But there are a lot of closed doors out there. So love your neighbor, but don't push. Let me give you a simple step here. How about a prayer walk? A prayer walk in your neighborhood. Just walk through your neighborhood. And as you go past each house, pray for the individuals who are living in that home. Say, God, would you pour out your blessings on them? Would you help me to get to know this person? Would you guide our conversation so I can take the next step? If you do that, watch how God works. God will really do something. He will show up. And life brings us many neighbors. Some of you have neighbors at work, little office or cubicle neighbors. Some of you may have neighbors here at church, people sitting next to you you haven't gotten to know. You can bless them. And you never know when a neighbor breakthrough might happen. You know, the final moments of Jesus' life were spent hanging on a cross between two thieves. His last neighbors were on a street called Death Row. Two guys on crosses. One of them wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He actually mocked Jesus. But the other one, in a moment of great surprise, in his last breath, stood up for Jesus. And he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See that simple step of faith there? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said, right now we're neighbors in death. Later on today, we'll be neighbors in paradise. And Jesus is still looking for neighbors. Jesus' neighbor movement started a couple thousand years ago and it's changed the world. It's still going on. And I'm telling you, it can happen right here in Georgetown, Texas, and you are a part of that movement. This is part of your calling in life, the good works that God has prepared for you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, it's an amazing story. And it's good to, to look at it afresh, maybe from a little different perspective. And I just pray that you would speak to each and every one of us about our eyes not being so self-focused and turned inward, but that our eyes would look out, that our hearts would look out. Whether it's at work, in our neighborhood, wherever we're at, we would look for opportunities to love. Sometimes it's just small little steps. But to truly care for the people around us, the people you bring us into contact with. Because there are no accidents in in your economy and in our life. God, forgive us for the times when we are so self-absorbed, so self-focused. And I pray that we would be able, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to know the deep love you have for us and then reflect that to others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions about having a relationship with Jesus, what that's all about, we've got people up front that would love to talk with you. Also, if you have a prayer need or prayer concern, they'd be happy to pray with you as well. Otherwise, you guys go and have a fantastic week.